Hi, and welcome back to Mountain Stories, a podcast from the Institute for Mountain Research at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're here to tell stories about the mountains and the people who live, work, and play in them. My name is Brent Olson. I'm one of the co-directors of the Institute. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series in which we're going to look just a little bit to our west to tell you five stories about the Great Salt Lake and the connections between the lake and the mountains around us. For today's episode, we owe a really big thank you to the Great Salt Lake Institute, which helped compile some of the audio we're sharing for you today and for supporting lots of great research centered on the lake. While the region around Salt Lake City today might be more famous for our mountain resorts, there was a time when the lake resorts were the region's hubs for leisure. In today's first section, Jeff Nichols, the other director of the IMR, will share some of the history related to those resorts. And then in the second half of today's episode, we'll hear from a couple students, Chloe Fender and Emily Calhoun, who will introduce us to Rebecca Richard. The three of them sat down over the summer so that Rebecca could share some inside personal info about what it was like to visit the resorts both during and after their heydays. First though, here's Jeff. So Saltaire was the biggest and eventually the, the best known of a long series of lake resorts. There were something like 10 roughly total over the years. A number of them came and went. There was a, a son of Brigham Young, John Young, uh, who built what was maybe the, the, the very first one on the East Shore. So there were, there were East Shore resorts and then there were sort of South Shore resorts. The East Shore Resort made sense for John Young because he had a railroad line, you know, between Salt Lake and, and Ogden. It was was served by by that railroad. The problem with the East Shore is there's no sand, and uh, you get a few people walking on it, and it turns into this nasty blue muck. So he was the first to discover there's there's things that that are really nice about trying to recreate at the Great Salt Lake. And there's some real problems. Then there was another one, I believe he, he called his, I, I'm, I'm always getting these confused. His, I believe, was Lakeside. Uh, a guy named Jeter Clinton, uh, who was was kind of the, the, the city physician, the uh, municipal ph- uh, ph- physician and a justice of the peace, built a place called Lake Park on the south end. So he was the very first one there. Then there was Garfield, actually named for the ship, was originally the city of Corinne. It got bought by another guy when James Garfield came out to visit he supposedly decided to, was persuaded to run for president while he was out on that boat on the Great Salt Lake. So they renamed it the Garfield. Poor James Garfield got assassinated. So it got turned into, it was kind of a lake excursion boat. Then they decided to dock it permanently, stripped off the paddle wheels, stripped off the engines and built a facility around it and called it Garfield Beach. And they actually did. This is on the south end, um, pretty near Black Rock. They actually did have a beach, a pretty nice swimming beach for a while. What everyone keeps discovering is that the lake, uh, the lake shore is so dynamic. It's just always changing because it's so shallow, because you know, small changes in runoff, uh, either way, more water, less water. 
uh, means vast changes in where the shoreline is. Well, you're building docks, you've got a boat there, whatever, you've got boardwalks, you want stability and you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it at the lake shore. But Garfield was popular enough and there was, there was a railroad built out there. It was, it was attracting big crowds. Apparently on one 4th of July, uh, somewhere, somewhere around 1890, there were 10,000 people out there celebrating the 4th of July. So the LDS church for a combination of reasons. They, 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 they talked about, well, Garfield's okay, but it's, um, there's a lot of morally questionable recreation out there. Young men, young women swimming together and uh, coming back and forth on the, what, what were known, the, the bathing trains. And you see in the newspapers, they're complaining that, you know, maybe there's people who, uh, you know, you're wearing your bathing costume, which we wouldn't think of as uh, very revealing, but they would. And maybe young women are, they're not with their brothers, they're not with their fathers, uh, and they're, they're talking to young men and maybe doing more than talking, who knows, on the train. So LDS Church decides for those reasons and probably to, to earn some revenue, which you know, they, they needed, we'll open our own resort. So they did. That was Saltaire. Much bigger planned right from the start to be uh, a, a much more elaborate, fancy, quite beautiful uh, design. Uh, Richard Clettering, same guy who designed the Capitol, designed uh, it. The first two iterations of Saltaire, which are often, I don't think they called it that at the time, Saltaire 1, Saltaire 2, were, were pretty spectacular. Don't quote me exactly on these dates, but Saltaire 1 opened, I believe, in 1890, although I'm also, my brain's going 1892. So, so that's Saltaire 1. It suffered a fire, I believe, in 1925, uh, got rebuilt. Saltaire 2 suffered fire and wind and tornado and 18 other things, Staggered on until uh, the late 1950s, it closed, and then Saltaire 3 started in the early 1980s and is still there. The facility itself was kind of this, this big crescent, like a crescent moon uh, with the, the, the horns of the moon into the, into the lake. Um, so there, there are these long curving uh, docks with a couple of hundred little tiny bathing cottages. So the idea was Saltaire didn't have a beach. But you went out over pilings and, and, and actually the, the railroad would take you partway out onto the boardwalk. Apparently the, uh, the trip out from Salt Lake, as short as it was, was really kind of spectacular that you're, you're seeing it appearing, you know, sort of over the flats and see the ochres on one side. Uh, and you'd come out, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd stop at the, at the station and here was this uh, sort of Moorish designed plate. This was an era when that design was, was very popular. So um, they were meant to be sort of, you know, Turkish-shaped uh, turrets uh, or maybe, you know, Russian Orthodox, think uh, St. Basil's Cathedral. So it was meant to, to evoke that sort of interesting given our, our present political climate. And, and, and also I was always struck by the fact one of the one of the sort of nasty accusations against the LDS church in the days of polygamy was it's like a Turkish harem. Um, which was not particularly accurate, but yet they designed this place to sort of look like, you know, a, a, a Muslim palace, uh, you know, top copy or something like that. You'd get off 
And there was a lot going on. There were carnival games. There were there was always music. There were bands. Perhaps the centerpiece was uh, the very big dance floor, uh, which they always claim it's the it's the biggest dance floor on earth. I don't know that anyone's ever investigated that claim, but you know what the heck? You could you can you can claim it. They'd bring in bands, and particularly as as they went through you know Salt Air Two in the 1920s into the 30s, a lot of very very well known bands were out there. But they had all kinds of things. They had bullfights. They had they had prize fights, boxing matches, which were technically illegal, so they had to call them exhibitions. One of the many things that I found interesting and amusing. The executives of the company, there was a, uh, there was a, a, a board for Saltaire, the resort. There was a board for a uh, board of directors for the railroad, identical, but they were for corporate reasons. They were kept separate. These uh, gentlemen were uh, mostly high officials in the LDS church, which is not at all unusual for these kinds of uh, uh, businesses of the time. Talking again about, you know, hey, we want, we want a pure, virtuous family place, a place to bring your family. They didn't discriminate against non-Mormons, but the idea was, you know, hey, this is for our folks. As they're designing and building it from the very start, the managers they hire, the people they bring in say, well, you got to be open on Sunday. Because otherwise, you know, when, when are people going to be able come, to come out? It was, it was quite common uh, then for working class folks, especially you worked six days a week, you got Sunday off, but that would probably be it. It's a summer resort, like any summer resort, you got to make your money between Memorial Day and Labor Day. So right away, there's like, oh, you know, we, we got to pack the people out here. So we got to be open on Sunday. So they sort of, you know, they acquiesce in that. They also decide from the start, we have to sell beer. There, there were some of the directors who, who resisted saying, well, that's not, that's, this was just in the era when the, uh, the LDS church was starting to really emphasize the, the, the word of wisdom, the so-called word of wisdom. Uh, it was kind of a gradual thing. There was, of course, a, you know, a big national push towards temperance, limiting alcohol, if not prohibiting alcohol, which certainly fit in with, with LDS teachings. But they decide, okay, well, grudgingly we'll sell beer, but, but definitely not whiskey, nothing stronger than beer. And, and they never did. They never went uh, uh, beyond uh, uh, beer. They actually had a, uh, one full season, maybe two full seasons, where the, the protesting directors convinced them, no, no beer. And the manager came in at the end of the season and demonstrated to them how terrible their revenue was that year and how they were losing money. And it just, you know, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna fly. So what they eventually did, and this is the early 20th century or uh, um, 1904 or five, uh, they sold, the, the, the LDS church as a corporation sold uh, Saltaire, sort of lock, stock and barrel to mostly Mormon businessmen. And then it was because they were getting, they were getting a lot of criticism. Salt Lake Tribune, which ebbed and flowed as sort of an anti-Mormon newspaper um, for other reasons. When they discovered, it hardly was a secret, that, you know, hey, you're selling beer out there and that's hypocritical and that's, uh, you know, you, you talk a good game, but you're not really living up to it. Uh, so they really condemned them. So this was a way, I think, for the LDS church to you know, uh, take a step back and sort of, uh, uh provide, a, uh, a, a buffer 
this as well. It's not owned by the church anymore. When they first built it, the water's about four feet deep under the, um, the bathing things, which is exactly what they wanted. So you'd, you'd change in the little tiny cabin. So, you know, no one's seen you changing and that it's very private. You go, you go down a set of stairs. And like I say, there's 300 of these things. Go down a set of stairs and you can go into the water. And they, they tried all kinds of different things over, over the years. Sometimes it was enclosed and they'd build walls and all this stuff. As the water started to recede, they had a, a series of, um, you know, the, through, through about 1903, four, um, the water's going away, going away, going away. So they, well, we'll build a wall, we'll pump stuff in. They actually had a little tiny mini railroad that would take you out to the water because it got so, so far away. You can almost sense the desperation. They're like, come on, we, we need the water here. But when it was good, uh, you know, there'd be thousands of people out there and just, you know, the sun's baking you down. You had freshwater showers. You could climb out, get the salt off you, uh, go get something to eat. There were uh, uh, a couple of, there was, there was a little cafe and a fancier restaurant. You know, you could get snacks outside on the, on the boardwalk. Um, you could play these games. They had all kinds of races. There were bicycle races. There were boat races. There were, you, you could watch airplane races. Um, there was a lot of fun going on there. So I think it, I think it was a, a wonderful place to go. But in the worst luck in the history of luck, Salt Air 2 burns in, I think, I believe it's 1957. So it sits there for a long time as more or less a wreck, you know, this this amazing wreck suffers a couple more fires finally kind of goes away entirely always plans to, to, to redo it. So a group of investors get together, say we're going to get salt air three and it's actually a converted air force hangar. So it's a steel and concrete building like this baby ain't going to burn. So it, you know, it can't. They, they, they build this thing in the early 1980s, just in time for back-to-back, very heavy winters uh, with, with massive flooding. So the poor guys get out there and immediately they're flooded out, really before they can get up, up and running. You know, the floods, there were, there were streets in, in Salt Lake City. You talk about uh, uh, the city's relationship with the lake, which is quite interesting. Like I say, most of the time, it's just, it's that strange place to the West where we get pretty sunsets. It's always been sort of a dumping ground. Some of that is the physical nature of the lake. It's terminal, it's endoraic. Uh, it doesn't have an outlet. So you put stuff in, it stays there. And, you know stuff flows downhill. So all, you know, the mining waste and sewage and, and all this gets put out there. With the floods, suddenly the city gets reminded, hey, we're about a foot and a half uh, above, above that lake. Really heavy winters, suddenly uh, the, the, the city is flooding. Uh, and people had to care about the place. It was really, you know, uh, uh, Terry Tempest Williams writes uh, Refuge about watching the Bear River Refuge go underwater. And certainly at the time, in the, the short run, it did seem like this, you know, tremendous ecological disaster. It's largely recovered since then, and there's still millions of birds there. Probably, probably the flood sort of reminds the city, reminds uh, government officials and all that, hey, we should be caring about this place. 
And certainly friends of the Great Salt Lake and the Great Salt Lake Institute uh, have done really good work over the years to say, you know, hey, this is an important place and we can't just foul it. Uh, and we can't just keep starving it of water because um, it could go away and that would be disastrous. I was really interested in doing a podcast on the Great Saltaire, the big building. And Jamie had known that Rebecca had spent a good amount of time there. Just sort of like a cool personal connection to the lake from 50 years ago, which is a really interesting experience to hear firsthand. My mother, so she was born in 1926. So she told me stories about, she would have been a teen, let me think, 26. It would have been the late 40s, you know, as the war was ending and stuff. She would go on, and you've heard of Trolley Square. Trolley Square had trolley buses in it. And, and they worked on a trolley system. Mm-hmm. And she would take the train out to Great Salt Lake. Yeah. There was a trolley, that, I mean, a train cents. that went up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be a date. So she would go on dates and, and her, her date would go with her on that. So, but they would go out there and the big bands would play. And so originally it was obviously there before that. She thought of it as Salt air is a ballroom. Yeah. So that was the way she perceived it. Of course, there were concessions and everything that yeah. made it a little bit of a, 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 a fun dating experience, yeah, but it was the chance to go out and dance. Yeah. And so, you know, when the big bands would come through, through, that's where they'd be, but also there were other bands that would play there regularly on weekends for yeah. daters. That's her memory of it, and honestly, that's part of how I remember yeah. it. I went to a couple rock concerts there. What would you say? Uh, you know what? I'm embarrassed. No, don't I don't remember. Oh, okay. Because I was on hallucinogens yeah, every time yeah. I would go out there to see <laughs> a rock band. If you think that the, 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 the dance floor and the way it all looked was amazing to you, let me tell you. When, when you're <laughs> spacing out in other ways, it was like an otherworldly experience. Oh, and it was absolutely beautiful and wonderful and I loved my experiences out there. They're removed from reality. It was a feeling of being there but it doesn't have much to do with my daily life or what I was doing or anything. It was just like I remember Saul there. I remember that I was moved Mm -hmm. enough by these experiences that um, I took a, a boyfriend and we went out there several times when there was no one playing and just did our special (laughs) (laughs) drugs. We did our drugs Uh and sat on that dance floor and just spaced out on it. I can see it visually. Mm -hmm. I can hear the lake. I can hear the birds. Just remembering that particular experience. So when they say it's heightened sensitivity, Mm -hmm. which is what I was doing this for, it definitely was. And so it's a really special memory. Mm 
it would be like more in the middle 70s. Yeah. I went, I, I had married and moved to Los Angeles and lived there for a while. And I divorced and moved back to Salt Lake. And a friend of mine who had moved here from New York was interested in seeing the lake. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know whether there was a fire in between there. I think the fire was after that. I think it was 70s, yeah. Yeah, so. it was in the 70s somehow, but I think it was after mm -hmm. we went. We went out and it was, at that time, it was more or less the bathhouse. It was, yeah. it was not in very good shape. Mm -hmm. And we went out with, in bikinis mm -hmm. and towels yeah. and went out to go be on the beach. Mm -hmm. I found that silly because I also found it silly and yeah. when I lived in Los Angeles I told my husband I'll never be a California girl because just <laughs> sitting here on the beach with hundreds of people, thousands of people yeah. sitting on the beach yeah. around me seems totally stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well it seemed kind of stupid at the Great Salt Lake too. Yeah. The and there were plenty of people that did that. So there, there would be cars that pulled up and at the time there was no internet and no I think boom boxes existed. Mm -hmm. So there'd be boom boxes or people playing the car, you know, the, the tape deck from their radio really loud. Oh, yeah. So you'd hear this music from people and yeah. hanging out on the beach. And I don't think it was ever very many people. It yeah. wasn't a big crowd ever. Yeah. But the fun for me was going out into the lake. You could go out then, but all you really did was float. Right. Who, who would swim? <laughs> yeah. You don't want the salt in your eyes. So, yeah. you know, it was a matter of just going out and weirding out okay. on how you could float. <laughs> yeah. And then you came in and they did have little stalls that you could go in and shower. So you okay. could you could shower the, the salt off of you, more or less, so you weren't covered with, yeah. you know. And that wasn't in the salt air? That was, that like was right next to next it. I didn't go into it then because I didn't want to ruin my memories. Yeah, and it yeah. looks it looks so yeah. run down, I didn't want to ruin that. That's the last experience, you know, of my youth okay. that I remember of going yeah. out to the lake. <laughs> the only thing is that if you know what's going on, you know, you know you're suffering. Yeah. If you're not aware of the lake, you don't know how much of your life is, being, mm -hmm. is being affected by yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think that that's, in my opinion, when I'm writing or when I'm reading or when I'm thinking about anything uh, in like environmental science or anything, it's attachment to place that will make people take yeah. care of it. A lot of people did a lot of great work to help today's podcast come together. First, a huge thank you to Jamie Butler and Bonnie Baxter from the Great Salt Lake Institute for making sure that stories of the lake are told and that we continue to learn from it. Also, thanks to Chloe and Emily for sitting down with Rebecca and sharing that audio with us. And then Jeff was interviewed by Jules Jimrevat and Sid Sattler for an episode of their Great Salt Lake podcast that never actually aired. There's a link to that podcast in the episode notes, and it's totally worth listening to. Additional music is provided by Poddington Bear, and our theme music is Home by Pixie and the Partygrass Boys. As Naomi likes to say, they are awesome, and you should check them out. Before